Today's reading comes from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. A man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and had a son. She saw there was something special about him and hid him. She hid him for three months. When she couldn't hide him any longer, she got a little basket boat made of papyrus, waterproofed it with tar and pitch, and placed the child in it. Then she set it afloat in the reeds at the edge of the Nile. The baby's older sister found herself a vantage point a little way off and watched to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter came down to the Nile to bathe. Her maidens strolled on the bank. She saw the basket floating in the reeds and sent her maid to get it. She opened it and saw the child, a baby crying. Her heart went out to him. She said, this must be one of the Hebrew babies. Then his sister was before her. Do you want me to go and get a nursing mother from the Hebrews so she can nurse the baby for you? Pharaoh's daughter said, yes, go. The girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter told her, Take this baby and nurse him for me. I'll pay you. The woman took the child and nursed him. After the child was weaned, she presented him to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her son. She named him Moses, saying, I pulled him out of the water. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Nicole. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is Pastor Scott. So glad to be with you. Uh, Father's Day. Uh, also, the first Sunday of a new sermon series called The Art of the Journey. We are going to be studying over the course of the summer the life of Moses through primarily Exodus into Deuteronomy, uh, looking at different passages at Moses' life. Moses, one of the great leaders, uh, took the nation of Israel from place of slavery to the promised land, right to the edge of the promised land. There's so much meaning in this series. We're so excited uh, to take the journey with you. And as always, the hope wouldn't be that this would just be the old words of the old scriptures, but that they would. They would change your life and that your life, whatever place you're in, you're a student, you're a senior citizen, you're somewhere in between, uh, you're a father, you're single, you're, you know, wherever you're at in the journey, that these words would make a difference to your life. Before we do that, I want to just say a moment here um, about last Sunday. I was on vacation, but if you were like me, you opened the news Sunday morning and just thought, oh my Lord, what is happening in the world? The shooting in Orlando, the worst shooting uh, worst loss of life we've had since 9-11, and this last week, it's felt like the bullets have continued to fly uh, towards gay and straight, towards Muslim and non-Muslim, towards Christian and non-Christian, and it has just been such a heartbreaking week um, for all involved, uh, most of those, the, the families of those that were lost, and so um, I'm just going to pray a prayer over us. This is a prayer from Scott Dudley, who's a pastor on the east side uh, at a Presbyterian church, And it's really just a prayer of lament that we as a church would be able to mourn with those who are mourning and that we would love people well that are suffering and that we would continue to learn as a church how to to testify to God's great love to the people of this earth. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, we mourn with those who are mourning this morning. Help us to experience their grief with them so they do not grieve alone. Jesus, we pray for the victims, their families and friends, the LGBTQ community that was singled out in this attack. Lord, we pray for the Muslims who will be unfairly associated with the violent actions of one violent man. Lord, please bring your comfort to all of them. Lord, help them know that you are there and grieving with them. 
And Lord, we also pray that you would protect them and you would transform the hatred in our world and in our hearts into your love. We also ask, Lord, for the healing of our country and of our world. Lord Jesus, may your peace and justice be done here on earth as it is in heaven and show us this day how we can help that happen. Lord, where there is hate, help us to sow love. In your name, Jesus, amen. Amen. This morning here on Father's Day, uh, we begin this art of the journey, story number one, with a sermon titled, Everyone Has a Story. And hopefully you brought your Bibles. If you did not, we have Bibles for you that are free for the taking on both the wings, or maybe they're out in the lobby. We're going to be looking at all of Exodus 1 and the first 10 verses of Exodus 2 around this idea of story and how our story, even the worst parts, even the scary parts, even the exile parts, even the broken parts, God can use for his glory. And so I'll just begin with an illustration. My brother and I, it was the year 1995, and we were on a detour to the Holy Land. We were on this, this kind of, uh, my brother had graduated from college and I was a sophomore. We were on this coming-of-age adventure through Europe, and we dreamed of going to Israel, but the problem was from Italy to Israel was too expensive, and so my brother hatched this great idea, we'll fly to Egypt first, we'll land in Egypt and then take a bus to the Holy Land, and it sounded like a bad idea then, and we had no idea what we were getting into. We flew into Cairo International Airport, young, naive, white, privileged Americans, And as we get off the plane, enveloped in sights and smells and heat, there are security guards with machine guns every 10 feet. And and the culture of fear as people are screaming and people are selling stuff to us and and marketing things and yelling. And, and, you know, it was just, it was overwhelming. I I didn't even want to go here. I'm looking at my bro. I'm like, this is your fault. And and the guys, the security guards, just looking at us like they just wanted to kill us for even being there. Why are we in such a a foreign place? And I'm looking at him and I'm like, this is just a big detour to the adventure. There's nothing good that can happen to us in Cairo. So we, we had to kill about 30 hours before we caught a bus to the Holy Land. And I had this bad attitude, this hard heart, because I was scared. I, mean, I, was, I was scared. We checked into this, you know, flea bag hotel. It was all we could afford. And, you know, it was just, the, the, again, the sights, the smells, the culture was so different. I felt so foreign there. And I was so certain that it was going to be miserable that I wasn't even able to receive anything. It felt like a detour to the Holy Land and just a place of blatant fear. And this becomes a transition into the Exodus story. Because oftentimes for the people of God, in the narrative of God, they found themselves in places of fear and places that they didn't intend to go on their journey to the Holy Land. I mean, I'll I'll come back to my story. We end up making it by bus, but the story's not over yet. And here, in the story of God in Exodus 1, God's people are here in Egypt, and it's this detour. But God is going to tell us about Moses And about his story and about how his story, even the bad and the broken and the horrible parts, end up being redeemed by God in order to lead God's people to freedom. Because everyone has a story, friends, and our story intimately shapes our journey. And God longs to use the good and the bad 
the broken and the profound, the wonderful and the challenges, all to kind of continue to reveal himself in us, that we might be his people. Uh, Don Miller, who's a Christian narrative nonfiction writer, has created this conference, really started for writers, and now it's kind of been you know, marketed to all sorts of people, called Storyline. And for people to write good stories, they first, says Don, need to understand their own narrative. And so they do this activity with a piece of paper where they draw the story of their life. They timeline it. I was born here, and here was my first love, and here was my first heartache, and here was my first job, and here's the first time I got fired, and here's the first time that, you know, they're just, they're putting it all out there. And through the storyline conferences, they take people through the power of their own story. They're helping unleash in them the power of creativity to tell better stories. But this amazing thing happens because as people start to timeline their life, they start to see God's provision when they didn't originally see it. That that girl that broke your heart at 18, you look back now and like, thank goodness I didn't end up with her. The job that you just were sure was the right place and the right time, you can look back now and say, well... God was doing something else. And of course, God gives us all sorts of freedom to choose our own adventures. But when we look back over the story of our life, we can often see God's hand of provision has been there all along. He's been there all along. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 139, David writes, I praise you from fearfully and wonderfully made, God. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, God, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And for too long, we as a church have been worried about appearing to be good Christian men and women. Instead of understanding the pieces of our story, the good and the bad, that God wants to redeem it all in order to make us more like him. So the truth is, as we look at Exodus' story, you have a story, every one of you in the room, and your story matters a great deal. God wants to use the elements of what you've experienced in the past to help lead you to more fullness in him. And so this is our big idea, that God uses every element of our lives, every one of them, to move us towards our calling as people of hope in this world. Let's begin here. At the first point of your outline, you got an outline as you came in, that God, point one, uses every element in our lives, even when we're in exile or we've lost favor. So we're going to be looking at the narrative of Moses uh, through Exodus 1 and 2, ultimately hoping that God would reveal his story in us. Let's look at the beginning. God uses every element in our lives, even when we're in exile or we've lost favor. Look at the first 10 verses of chapter 1. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, everyone with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, you get the point. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. So if you look back at the end of Genesis, we have the the story of Joseph. And it's a different sermon, a different different day, but the story of Genesis is, is amazing. The family story. The timeline, Abraham was given the, pro- the promise, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob had these sons, and then there was one son who was proud, but he was, you know, given the, the coat, remember the coat of many colors, and so his brothers sold him to a caravan, the caravan takes him to Egypt, he ends up in a prison in a foreign land, and that just, 
I mean, I'm not preaching on Joseph today. It's a different message. But if you want to remember in all the places of your life that God's not done with you yet and your life can have profound meaning, look at the story of Joseph. Because in jail, in exile, God wasn't done with them yet. And if you're like me, you can become so certain that you know how the chapter ends. You know the words that God should be writing. If my life was a story, God, I would like to take the pen. All right, Jesus, you take the wheel. I'll take the pen. We'll write this beautiful story, right? But in Exodus, it doesn't turn out that way. Seventy end up in exile, and they became a great nation, but they're in captivity. Joseph died, verse 6, and his brothers and all that generation. The writer, Moses, with extra sources, Moses saying he's like jumping ahead by hundreds of years. Verse 7, the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so the land was filled with them. It's a little bit ironic because they're actually slaves in the land. But in captivity for about 400 years, this seedling of 70 becomes several million. And so they're in exile, and so they wait, and so God is silent, and yet they wait for him. And they obey in obedience in the long, slow occupation in Egypt. That's very helpful because God uses every element of our lives, even when we're in exile or when we've lost favor. The story of Israel here is they had to wait for hundreds of years, and God was silent. And if God's never been silent in your life, then Lord bless you. You have a unique perspective. For most of us in the room, if we're going to timeline, we'll say that was, that was a kind of a period of silence there. And the silence for many of us can be deafening. God, what are you doing here in this relationship, in this job, as I leave high school, as I leave college, as I leave the career, as I figure out what to do with this career? God, why don't you speak more often? And God is just saying, he's working behind the scenes here with the nation of Israel. There's something to be learned in the silent times and in the exile periods. He was, he was doing a work. He was preparing his people in order to be moved. And so... They're, they're, just, they're just waiting. And then verse, verse 8 and, and 9. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Narrator goes back to the beginning. Joseph had earned favor in Pharaoh's household. Israel had moved to Israel and been established. And slowly over 400 years they had lost favor. New kings, new pharaohs, new lines, new dynasties have come up. And the new Pharaoh says, verse 9, he said to his people, Behold, the people, the sons of Israel, are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. And then the, the term here is foreshadowing because they're actually not worried about being overrun. They're worried about Israel running out on them. And so Pharaoh said, let us deal wisely. Let us kind of enslave the people so they can't gain their freedom. And so from this tiny strand becomes millions of people. And, and we're about to have this evil king. You can kind of cue the Star Wars music. Uh, you know, the, the, the Pharaoh is the first character we see after uh, Jacob's sons who's ruling over his people. The people are in exile. And the people have lost favor. And yet, God continues to write a deliverance story here. 
He's saying that even though there's pieces and places where you won't understand what's going on, everyone's got a story. Trust the process. And experience what I have to give you in the day because you don't know what I'm doing with the life. You know, that day that my brother and I spent in Cairo that I was just so sure was the detour to the Holy Land. And I was just kind of, literally, I just wanted to kind of hole up and, and like in the hotel, not eat street food, not get sick, and just, and just like not experience anything because I couldn't wait to get to the next place. It was my brother who said, we need to get out of here. We need to see, we're in, we're in Egypt. Will you like, he slaps me. Would you like knock, knock it off? So we go out and we meet this cab driver. For the life of me, I can't remember his name, but I remember his face. I remember meeting him, and I remember asking him to take us out and showing us, you know, the Sphinx and the, the pyramids, and he says yes. And we said, we're also kind of curious. This place feels scary. We actually would like to see some of Cairo. He's like, I will take you to where I'm from. Do you want to see where I'm from? We said, yes, we want to see that. And so we get in the back of his cab, and he's driving us to the streets of Cairo and to the kind of the outskirts. And this is 1995. And in 1995, not too far out from downtown Cairo, we arrive at the cab driver's little, little shanty town. And the cab pulls up, and it, they don't get a lot of cabs in this part of Cairo. And so kids come running, and there's kind of shanties on either side of this ravine. And in the ravine is where all the sewage just ran out of their shanties, and it's just sitting in an open area. And there's garbage, and there's dead animals, and the children are running and playing, and it's just shocking and I'm moving from a place of fear to now a place of most astonishment and surprise. And now the, the children are kind of around the taxi, around my brother and I, and I'm just like still not sure how a place of fear can teach me anything. And so I'm just kind of here in my shell, and my brother slowly unwraps a pack of big red gum. And he starts to, to dole out pieces of gum to all these children now, we were young and naive, I already told you that. That's kind of the first rule, like, don't give candy to strangers, right? It's like not a good idea. But these kids were like, hey, you know, they were eager for the gum. The gum was safe. And they put the piece of big red gum in their mouth, and it was like, oh, it's amazing to them. We get back in the cab and go do our tourist things, and I'm like, huh. Okay, God, I get it a little bit. The places that I think are a detour are places that you can teach me so much about my privilege, about my lack of insight, and about the way in which the world actually is. And when we disengage, or we're just fearful, or we're sure that God can't teach us something, we'll miss the whole thing. Because God uses every element in our lives, even the exile places, even the lost favor places, even the broken places, even the addicted places. God uses those places and the sooner that we get to the real of ex exposing the stuff that we want to hide and just praying for God to show us truth and, and justice, then God can use the pieces of our life that we'd rather cover up in order for his glory. The second piece of our story, knowing how God wants to kind of lead us on this wonderful, beautiful journey, is the second point of our outline, that God uses every element in our lives, even when we feel enslaved by our labor, by our work. There's this huge work piece here in the second part of Exodus 1, both for men and women. And every one of us in the room at times can resonate with this idea of being a brick maker, or being a midwife, being, being stuck in a job that maybe isn't super life-giving. Look at verses 11 through 22 in your Bible or on the screen behind me here. So, so Pharaoh, in order to, to keep Israel down, he appointed taskmasters 
over them, to afflict them with hard labor. And it's interesting here. It's their jobs that, that create the enslavement. It's their, it's their actual jobs. They actually were paid for these jobs. They're not just locked up in concentration camps. But watch what happens here. Pharaoh appoints taskmasters to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. But it's interesting to me. They're afflicted with labor. But not just like digging ditches. They're actually building the empire that reigns over them. They're actually going to work every day to make Pharaoh stronger. And if you don't think that's discouraging, you've never had a job that you've hated before. Right? Those of you who are like, man, I, I hated that job. There's a little piece of this that resonates because you're like, man, I'm going to work every day into a place that doesn't feel life-giving. I'm trying to be full of salt and light. I'm trying to, God, what are you doing with my life? I'm trying to live out my calling, but I go to work and I'm, 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 I'm making the empire stronger that's kind of lording over me. And so, they're, they're, they're building bricks. They're building these storage cities. But they continue to multiply. They continue to increase. And if you're in a place vocationally that feels like exile or feels discouraging, see what happens in verse 12. That the more they're afflicted, God still will multiply. And you might be in a season where you're not living the dream and you're calling. You're just, you're building Ramses and Pithom maybe. But God can still do something there. Remember Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Well, I want to talk about that next thing. Well, I'll talk about that next thing with you too. But what has God given you today? This job, this school, this relationship. This is the work that God has called us to often. It's not the next thing, it's this thing. And so continuing on here, they're, they're building these storage cities Verse 13, the the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field. All their labors which were rigorously imposed on them. So you see this rigorous twice. They're literally being worked to the bone. Then the king of Egypt spoke to Hebrew midwives. Well, let's, let's pause there. Let's just look at the men. The, the men are being uh, twice uh, afflicted. The word is used for afflicted. And, and twice the word of rigorously. They're being, they're being worked to death. And, and they're not sure what they're doing. And they're not sure what, how God is going to take this silent time and building empires for the foreign king. And yet God is slowly working behind the scenes. God is slowly working that in their work, God would do something beautiful. And most of us in, in, in this room, our jobs are where we spend a majority of our lives. I've said oftentimes the next great reformation will not happen necessarily through the church, but through the marketplace. And you are spending 8 to 10 to 12 hours at another place in your workplace. Are you testifying that God's writing a story with your life? In unspoken ways, I get it. In wise ways, but is your life full of Jesus? Oh, I don't, you know, I'm a stay-at-home dad. I'm a stay-at-home mom. How do I do that? <laughs> you need more grace and mercy, right? I mean, how hard are you working? God wants our labor to matter, but many of us, we don't get to kind of our name in the lights type scenarios most of the time. We're just working. And we've got to trust that God has put us in certain fields and certain times to labor rigorously And God will do something good with that. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it now with all your might. 
And then, verse 15, we get this word to women. The kings of Egypt spoke to Hebrew midwives. One of them was named Shipra, and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women give birth, and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall put him to death. And if it's a daughter, you shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. And so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, because of the Hebrew women, they're, they're not as the Egyptian women, O Pharaoh. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became mighty because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son's born you're to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. A forced genocide. And sometimes this is just helpful because we'll read some of these other narratives of, uh, of what happens in Joshua and genocide. It's like, man, I don't, I don't even get it. My mind doesn't work like that. How can God order other people to die? It's interesting in the context of 3,500 years ago. It was a world very much at war. And the nation of Israel was enslaved, and now here their king over them says, every son must die. And yet the midwives listen not to Pharaoh, but to God. And there's this piece of civil disobedience here, the same kind of text that uh, Bonhoeffer would wrestle with in the Second World War, where he actually for a while was trying to, to kill Hitler. He was disobeying the law of the land to follow the law of the Lord. And maybe for some of us this morning, that has a practical application, I don't know, but where God is just telling you to do something that maybe you're, you're at work not supposed to do, or maybe it's a hard decision to make to follow God's law, but it's interesting, right? Who are the two women named here, Shipra and Puah, other than the sons of Jacob? They're the only ones, even Pharaoh's not named. These women end up in the Bible as simple midwives who chose to obey the father God, who, who chose to obey the things that God was asking them to do and not listen to the law of the land. And the midwives have a place in God's story. This is pretty interesting for us. Like, as you think about your life, who's your taskmaster? <laughs> Some of you are like elbowing a spouse or something, but now who's, who's your taskmaster? Is your job a place where you're feeling like you're living out your calling and be, you know, or you're a student and you're doing everything you dreamed of? Or is this kind of a harder season? A little more silence, a little more labor, a little more of, you know, kind of a pharaoh type thing ruling over you. God can use this time for glory. He can use this time for glory. When we lived in California, I was sure there was this season where I knew that I was being called to the next thing. Uh, this is just be a familiar theme because I'm, I really love to look towards the next thing and I can sometimes miss that thing right in front of me. And I was sure that God was calling us away from California back to the Northwest and we were going to do this and we were going to do that. I had no idea how God was going to weave my story to where I sit before you today. But there was this year, it was kind of this lame duck year because, you know, I had kind of notified the school district that I was teaching that I was no longer going to teach. In my heart, you know, it's like you're kind of taking the, the art down from the wall. It's like you're no longer investing in an area. You're, no, you're now like kind of pulling out emotionally, not investing in new friendships, not painting the walls, just kind of like, you're just kind of killing time. And last weekend on our anniversary, we got to go to the wedding of one of the young men that was in my life at that time. 
well, I was his teacher, and he was in our Young Life Club, and get to see the man of God that he's become. And I was, God was reminding me again, even those seasons that you're not sure what God is doing, he will use those times if we turn it over to him with open hands. Lord, use this day, use this week, use this period. When we're uncertain of how it ends up, God says, that's okay. I will use this time. I will use your job. I will use your life. And that leads us to our third point, where God will use every element of our lives, even the messy parts, lived by messy families. There's this really messy family line to the great and mighty Moses. And I will not ask you for a show of hands of who arises from a dysfunctional family because every one of us in the, in the room would be like, oh man, I got, you know, I, got, I got some dysfunction in my family of origin. But the beautiful thing here is Moses is equipped even though he feels like his life is a bit messy. Look at the first 10 verses of chapter 2, the birth of Moses, the great and mighty Moses. You know, really, in, in a hero story in the ancient world, you know, entire books were given to the, the, to the origination of a hero's life. And here's the, the hero of the nation of Israel, and we get just a few verses. He's really not the star of the story. It's more about God's the hero in the story. Look at the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. And we could just stop there. Because, you know, like, there's a lot of miracles we're about to see. There's, there's burning bushes and, 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 and rivers being parted and snakes turning to wood and all this. But I think one of the big miracles, like, if you've been around a newborn lately, he was three months and she's kept him silent. Like, this is a miracle. Three months she hides him. We, uh, we, you know, we're inviting people to camp out. Come to camp out. We, we're going to cancel Sunday services that Sunday. We do it every year. We've done it for about five years. It's a really special time. If you're new to the community, it's a really great time to get more connected. If you've been established in the community for a while, come to camp out. So a couple years ago, we get to camp out, and we have a baby who, who's a baby, and we're sleeping in a tent, and we get there late because I hadn't planned well, and I didn't have the right gear, so I'm like running around Fred Meyer, like sprinting, buying like sleeping bags and stuff. Um, and so we, we, catch this, we catch this last ferry, we get to Camp Casey, everyone else is there, most people are asleep, we're setting up our tent, a tent, and we have the baby who, who's a baby and, and, and just kind of colicky and fussy this time with this horrible diaper rash, like just like open wound between the legs, and the poor little guy just any time he needed a diaper change, we just scream, and we're in a tent. And there's 200 people from Bethany North all like, oh, hey, the pastor's here, and he's in the tent. And like, if you slept in a tent, it's kind of crazy, right? Because you kind of are living like a homeless person. It's just like a little piece of nylon there. And the campground at Camp Casey perfectly was set up like an amphitheater. So the baby would scream, and the entire campsite would hear little baby sunned. And it was the most miserable night of our life. Luckily, he survived the night. We survived the camp out. We lived to laugh about it. But this idea that Moses was silent for three months, it's just unbelievable. But when the mother, who isn't named till later in Exodus, couldn't hide any longer, she gets a basket. She covers it with tar and pitch. She puts the child into it. She sets it in the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And then his sister, who we know from text, is named Miriam. She stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. And then the daughter of Pharaoh came down. There's so much mystery in this text. 
Because why were these slaves bathing near the Pharaoh? Well, what was Pharaoh's daughter doing near the slaves? We don't know, but there's so much mystery. The text is so just, just alive with meaning here. But the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe at the Nile near where the ba- slave baby was laid. And with her maiden, she was walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then Miriam, then Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? There's so much cunning, so much wisdom that the Hebrew people employ here. And Pharaoh's daughter said, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And so now Moses' mother is being asked to come back and be an employee of Pharaoh's house, to be a nursemaid of the child. We see the bravery of the midwives. We see the bravery of Pharaoh's daughter. She also avoids the law of her father, the king. She keeps this baby alive. Verse 9, then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. The woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. God uses every element in our lives, even the messy parts lived by messy families, because Moses was given up for adoption, And he's taken into the house of Moses as an adoptee, as a a stepchild. And it's actually Pharaoh's daughter that gives him the name Moses because I drew him out of the water. Great stories in the Bible often have humble beginnings. And you think of like when we have a picture of this in our mind, there's a mother, there's a baby, there's a a, a mellow river. And it's, it's sad, but it's kind of beautiful until you've actually stood on the banks of the Nile River. And if you've stood on the banks of the Nile River and there's rocks and rapids and crocodiles and wilderness areas, and then because God has allowed you to live in this exile land, you're being asked to lay your son in a basket and send it down the river. Man, this story is heartbreaking. God sometimes places us in situations where we don't see anything good that can come out of it. And we're absolutely certain that this is a mistake. And somehow, God provides. God is the hero of the story. Even Moses wasn't named by his godly parents. He's named from the house of Moses because I drew him out of the water. That's his name. And how ironic is it because later in Exodus, Moses is going to lead God's people back through the water. Friends, you have a name And your name has a meaning. Your name has purpose. God has given you a reason to be alive. And maybe for some of you this morning, you're still trying to come awake. God, what are you going to do with me? What's what's the mystery that you're going to unfold through my life? Your name is what God is preparing you for. And so this boy is given the name, I drew him out of the water. And in that way, any of us who have been baptized, like, well, that's kind of my name too. Because I've been, I've been drawn out of the water because of Jesus' life in me. I've been, I've been saved. And it's amazing here how Moses, he's really a saved person who God will use to save people. God uses broken people to do amazing things. Not from their strength or their perfect lineage, but because of God's power in their life. It's amazing how God uses saved people to save people. Think of the people in your life that have made the greatest impact. They're probably people that are pretty comfortable with their stories. 
and even the messy parts, they can testify to God's goodness and God's encounter. And, and that, that's really the big point here through the first 10 verses, that Moses, if this is this hero story, I mean, he was placed in an ark. He was sent down a river. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was saved by his own sister's cunning and a mother brave enough to give him up. And all this is going to set the stage for what we're going to talk about next week with, with Moses, or Exodus 2. But Moses isn't the hero here. It's God. The great theologian John Calvin said about this, he said it's, it's the power of God that's the hero. He says all things in, in Exodus 2, all things which led to the preservation of Moses were disposed by God's guidance, under God's auspices, and by God's spirit. And though Pharaoh decrees, though they're in enemy land, though they're not supposed to flourish, the people of God just keep doing what God has set at their hands. They keep marrying, they keep having children, they keep seeing the power of human relationship. They keep doing the jobs that God has asked them to do. And they're trusting that God is writing a big story in their life. This is the art of the journey. This is the, the mystery. And this is where our story starts to come into focus. This is where it starts to become real to us. Not just, hey, what did God you do then? But what are you doing now? Because of Moses' adoption into Pharaoh's family, his influence is magnified. Later on, when it's going to be Moses that goes in and says, let my people go, he's talking to his, to his adopted father. I mean, do you ever think about that when you read it? And if Moses hadn't been given up by his mother and adopted in this household, he probably wouldn't have ever even been able to have an audience with Pharaoh. And so the, the, the very parts of Moses' story that would seem to disqualify him for a life of greatness, God uses to redeem for his glory you see how profound this is. God can use your broken parts and your disadvantages to make beautiful things. And we're not qualified as God's people because of perfection or a perfect family tree or the fact that we have this perfect job or the fact that we've never felt like we're in an exile places. God uses us as we allow him to work in us and through us. And maybe this morning God just wants to speak to you here this morning Maybe he wants you to have a Moses moment of belonging. Like the people of Israel go from exile to being adopted into Pharaoh's house. And maybe God is saying to you this morning, you're here for a reason. And not here, but here. You're here in this life for a reason. And maybe for others, God is speaking to us about our jobs and our vocations and reminding us that there's a place for us to have influence there. Maybe others of us, we just feel a little bit like the baby floating down the river. We just want God to pluck us out. And we're mindful that we read this text through the New Testament, through a Savior who came for us, who lived for us, who died for us, and came alive for us, so that every one of us in the room would say, I was sent down the river, but Jesus made a way. And Jesus is alive in me. And I, wanna, I want God to take the messy parts. I want God to take the exile parts. I don't want to be somebody just appearing to have my act together. I want God to be the author of my whole story. And Jesus, make it more like you, that my life would be beautiful. And you'd be teaching me the timeline of my events, that my story has significance to people I come in contact with, with children, fathers. If you're a father in this room, may you be encouraged this morning. Your most important job is being a father. You are molding lives. 
And I know it is tiring work and discouraging work, but your work matters. And for others that aren't fathers this morning or don't have such a good relationship either with your own children, your own father, God is saying something to you. that You belong and your journey matters. Your story matters a great deal. There are no detours on the road to the Holy Land. God uses each of the turns, each of the places as we hand it over to him. And so my greatest hope, friends, as we leave today is that we tell our stories, not, not the perfect ones, the ones where maybe we felt like we weren't sure how God was going to answer it, that we speak truth to the kids we're raising, to the parents that we're in relationship with in our workplaces. We have real conversation How does this story matter to this story? That's what God is hungering for this morning. Us continuing to ask good questions, confessing our sin, giving God our whole selves because the beautiful journey awaits. Will you pray with me now? Father, thank you so much for time to read your words and to study your scriptures. May you take these old stories and make them new again. And Father God, we just pray that we'd be people that that ask good questions of our life as we find ourselves in more exile or distant or, or unfamiliar places, Lord, that we would wait and that we would hope and that we would persevere. Lord, for those of us in the room this morning discerning vocational call or, or an absence of vocation or discouragement, places where we feel like we have a taskmaster over us, places like the midwives where we feel like we're being asked to do stuff that's not consistent with our Christian faith. Lord, encourage us. Lord, allow our, our vocational spots to be places where we're speaking your words, your truth, your grace, your mercy. And Lord, will you use our, our, our families? Will you use our messy family stories to keep asking good questions, to keep handing the hurt parts over to you, God? That we would be people being transformed into your image, not from our perfection, Lord, but by your perfection? That just happens in truth-telling and confession and, and kind of opening ourselves up. But teach us to be vulnerable and real. As we timeline our story, Lord, we maybe just see that all of it belongs to you. So take us and be the Lord of our hearts and Lord of our lives as we continue in worship this morning. In your great name we pray, amen. As we respond this morning, everyone has a story. So it's, what is God saying to you this morning? Maybe he's just reminding you, you are a child of God. No matter what you've seen, no matter what you've done, no matter how you feel disqualified, you belong to a heavenly father. Maybe that's what you need to hear on Father's Day. For others, we've got prayer team people down front or there's prayer journals. If you just kind of want to process something that you're wrestling with this morning, we have people that would love to pray with you. May you be encouraged this morning. Your story matters to a father who loves you very much. Let's continue in worship. Will you stand with me?